Good morning. Wasn't that a powerful video about our freedom? Wow. Well, I'm excited to be here. I hope that you're enjoying your holiday weekend, whether you're up north watching us online or somewhere else, or if you're here with us in person. Uh, in my preparation for this morning's message, I finally figured out why I enjoy teaching out of the Old Testament stories better than passages like this one. I think of these New Testament passages often like the start of a UFC cage fight. Within 15 seconds, you've been punched in the gut, smashed in the face, and you're just kind of trying to get your balance, right? I like to think of the Old Testament more like a 15-round heavyweight fight. The first round's really just dancing around and kind of maybe wonder if you're lucky you avoid even getting hit at all in the first round. Now, I've had several weeks to prepare for this. The crux of what we'll be looking at from the chapter 2 of 1 John is really verses 15 to 17. And it's been really bouncing around fairly uncomfortably for the last few weeks. If I'm in love with this present world, the Father's love is not in me, it says. The principle is similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said, you cannot serve God and money. I found myself rehashing some questions over and over again. Lord, do I love the world more than you? How bad off am I? And what do I need to do to get this right? We'll be reading the first 11 verses and then verses 15 to 17. I've titled this morning's message, You Can't Have It Both Ways. And as usual, after we've read the passage, we'll start by looking at the easiest part, and we'll end with the most challenging, at least the most challenging for me. Here's the breakdown of how the morning's going to flow. First, we'll see the basics, the review. Jesus paid for our sin. We're going to be encouraged to live like him, loving God and loving others. Then we're going to talk about this. What about the people who talk a good game and the walk doesn't match it? Some of us worship exuberantly without obeying. Some of us don't really look and smell much like Jesus, if we're honest. We'll address the problems of hatred and attachment to this present world. We'll wrap it up with a challenge. And my hope is that we'll all leave agreeing we really can't have it both ways. I've asked my daughter, Caitlin, uh, to come and read our passage. If you could all please stand, 1 John chapter 2. I think it's page 1021 if you want to use the Bibles under your seat, or obviously if you have the journal, you can read that. Go ahead. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is a passage that's difficult to really want to slow down and take an honest look at. It's hard to own and admit the degree to which we may have sold out to the world's values. And if we're honest, many of us actually do believe we can have it both ways. We can love our worldly attachments and maintain a vibrant relationship with you. So we ask your Holy Spirit to shine light into our lives, to burn away our weaker desires, to expose what needs to be exposed. And may we be really overwhelmed by your love and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So the passage starts off by him saying, my hope is you'll never sin, but if you do, there's a solution. We have an advocate. Jesus paid the price, our propitiation. In the first chapter in verse 9, he gives us kind of the antidote when you're aware of your sin, right? Confess. If we confess our sins, he says, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And then did you catch that phrase in the sixth verse? Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Kind of sounds like something we've heard before, right? Striving to live like Jesus, doesn't it? If we claim to live in him, we should live like him. We should look and smell like Jesus did. After being around people, they should comment, wow, he or she sure has the aroma of Jesus, doesn't he? And then in verse 7, he says, look, this is not a new command that I'm giving you. And we all know what Jesus' summary of the commands are, right? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is kind of the easy part of the morning, the review of the basics. Jesus is our advocate, our propitiation. We're to live like him in full devotion to God and sacrificial love for others. Don't sin, but if you do, take advantage of the solution. Jesus paid the penalty, so confess, own it, repent. God will forgive, God will, chen, will, will cleanse us. Then we move into a section where he has a bunch of comparisons, and it's going to be maybe a little bit more dangerous to be listening from here on out. He says, our walk must match our talk, and then he tells us what it means when they're not congruent. And it's pretty sobering. In verse 4, he said this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Worship without obedience means our words are fairly meaningless. You can't say, I love God, when giving him the Heisman. That makes you a liar. Then in verse 5, he says, 
By this is how, this is how we're going to know we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Claiming to abide in Jesus when we don't look and smell much like him, again, it means that we don't. Something's amiss. Increasingly, we should be smelling and looking the way Jesus did. And then in verse 9, we begin to get a little bit more, a little bit more personal. He says, whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother, again, is lying. He's in darkness. Now, this is one we've seen before, right? In the Lord's Prayer that many of us have said hundreds of times in our life, right? We actually pray, God, forgive me the way I forgive others. At another point, Jesus actually said, if you don't forgive men their sins against you, my Father won't forgive yours against him. Now, why is this such a big deal, forgiveness? Because when we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, it means that we've missed just how great God's mercy is to us. It's as if we tell God, God, thanks for your forgiveness of my baby sins, but this person who's really done me the, the, the wrong, they don't, they're not worthy of it. Jesus warned, hatred is the same as murder. Remember the story of the servant that was forgiven millions, and he goes out and, you know, chases down and harasses someone that owed him a few hundred bucks. And, and the, moral, the point of the story is this, this can't happen. If you've really experienced his grace, you can't hold on to these grudges. But in this passage, John gives another window into it because he says, haters are in the dark. It blinds their vision from seeing situations accurately. Hatred and unforgiveness cuts us off from God's love, God's perspective. And I'm sure we've all been parties to this at some point. When you've got an issue with somebody and they do or say something, we connect the dots in the worst possible interpretation of motives, don't we? Yeah. It clouds our judgment. You can't be bitter and overflow with God's love. So what's the antidote to any of us that might sense that God's bringing someone to mind? You need to let it go. Hundreds of people in our church have been through something called a restorative prayer session. It's a guided prayer where people who are really good at, at walking us through, it will pinpoint, it will give you a tangible way to let go and you'll be able to experience God's infilling. I would highly encourage anyone here that knows they've got an issue with someone to consider that. So where have we been so far? We've got the basics of not sinning, looking like Jesus. If you do sin, take advantage of the solution, confess. We've got the don't be a hypocrite, stop lying to yourself. Your walk needs to match your talk. I consider thus far being round one of the heavyweight fight. So buckle up your seatbelts, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Verse 15 says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the part about hatred, if you hate your brother and you say I'm living in the light, you're wrong, you're in the darkness, that makes sense because when you're filled with bitterness, you're cut off from God's love. But it's a little bit harder to own this one, isn't it? If I love the world, I don't have God's love in me. And then he explains what that looks like in verse 16. All that's in the world, the desires of our eyes, the things that we covet that we want the desires of the flesh our cravings and he says the pride of life that well i'm at least i'm better than you or i've accomplished more than this person he says all of these things are not fatherly they're worldly 
Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is they don't all have the same stories in them of Jesus' life. And even when you read the stories, they often have little nuances that are different. Well, there's one story that was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John, the author of 1 John, never included it. But what we just read sounds a lot like it, doesn't it? Maybe you've already been thinking about the relation to the parable of the sower. Are you familiar with that one? Jesus says someone went out and scattered the word, God's message. Some fell on the asphalt and the birds ate it. Some went on the rocky side and it sprang up, but when the 100 degree heat came, there were no roots and it burned up and it just disintegrated. And then he says some grew among the thorns, the weeds. It grew up, but when it was time for the heads to grow full with the, with the grain, the weeds were sucking out. They choked. They were suffocating the life that God wanted, and they never fully matured. And then some were the, the good soil. Listen to how Mark describes the, the thorny soil. He said this. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of money, desires for things entered and choked or suffocated the word. Sounds a little bit like desires of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life, doesn't it? Listen to how Luke described it. The cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life choke out the plant and it doesn't mature. In other words, it doesn't end up looking much like Jesus or smelling much like Jesus. So far, so good. Now we're going to make it a little more personal. And the question I want to ask simply is this. How bad off are you? If you're honest, what's your garden look like? Is it well cultivated with lots of luscious vegetables and fruits? Or do you got a lot of weeds and little mini tomatoes? I think that we all in this room, probably those listening online, have to admit that we're likely pretty much at risk for weeds. Think of how much of our time is just spent on the cares of the world. Bills to pay planning the fun we'll have on weekends or vacations, desires for things apart from God. Sometimes it's even good things like our family, being in love. Some of us put our kids on a pedestal that's not where God wants them. Concerns about our health, vacations, conveniences, and of course that pride issue we'll get to later. Now, when we compare ourselves to missionaries and priests and the superheroes of the Bible like the Apostle Paul, obviously we can admit we're not 100% giving everything we do and think in all of our heart, soul, and mind to God. So we get a little depressed by that. So what do we do? Who wants to be depressed? Let's stop comparing ourselves to the saints. We look around at our peers and what do we do? We conveniently find areas where we're better than others and we go, well, at least I'm not that bad. Kind of like the frog in the kettle, right? <laughs> Consider many of the teachings on worldliness that were common in the church in America just a few decades ago. We were taught, don't go to movies, no drinking or dancing, conservative dress, modest, nothing flashy to bring attention to yourself. Simplicity in transportation, the point of the car is to get you to the store and back, not to be a status symbol with air-conditioned seats. <laughs> Vacations were frugal, 
but refreshing, not extravagant. Houses were not meant to be palaces with gorgeous bathrooms and kitchens. Extra money went to serving the poor, the less fortunate, supporting the church, expanding God's kingdom and missions. And our trust was in God to provide. The farmer prayed that the rain would come in the middle of August so that there would be a crop. Not the government to come through or our pension plan or our retirement accounts. I think it's safe to say that most of us are struggling with thorns and weeds most of the time just because we live in the world. Now, I spent a little bit of time the last few weeks going down a few rabbit trails, read up a little bit on the Amish, you know. They're the ones that when you're going up north at 60 miles an hour, they're in the buggy going three miles an hour. (laughs) It's interesting that the core of their decisions to avoid technology and to live a more simple life is to make it easier to focus on God and family and to live in community. They recognize many of the things that we couldn't imagine living without as distractions, competing for God. I went down a little bit of reading about the monks in the monasteries in the centuries old, right? You know, they give up any possessions. The big thing that to me was the most challenging was to enter a monastery, you basically give up autonomy to decide to the spiritual director, the abbot of the monastery. Boy, that would be tough for me to not decide how and when to spend money and what to do with our time. Consider even those that become priests today. They forego family, in essence, to get married to the church. A little more than a decade ago, I was a part of a, of a quarterly retreat cycle through the Transforming Center. It's something that's led by Ruth Barton. And in those quarterly retreats, we were exposed to many of the disciplines of the church over history. And the culmination of it all was to basically, at the end, write your own rule of life for how you would live in the world we're in and and really center your life on God. And before the last retreat, we did readings. And one of the things I had to read was the rule of St. Benedict. Now, he was a famous uh, Catholic monk from centuries ago, and he wrote out what the rules were to join his monastery. What was interesting is many times there would be pilgrims knocking at the door for months before they would even be deemed to have enough focus and commitment to be worthy of even kind of entering into the process. And as I mentioned, all possessions released, everything's held in common, no no self-determination. You are going to follow what the spiritual director says to do. I remember thinking at the time, God, if that's really what it meant for me to love you with all that I am, I'm not sure I'd be willing to do that. So the application question for this section is simply this. God, what weeds in my garden of my soul need to be uprooted? You know, there's a lot of scriptures that color a bit of what it looks like to be separated from worldly attachments. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes, and he's reflecting back at what their early days of following Jesus were like, and this is what he recounts. Remember when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one? When things were being taken away unfairly by the government or by robbers, they're like, that's okay, my life doesn't consist in my possessions in my house. Next week, we'll look at chapter 3, and one of the the phrases there, he, he just says, think of this. How could a believer filled with God's love have surplus in their bank account, look out and see brothers and sisters in need, and not help them? 
It's impossible that those two could coincide. James says it this way. He says, keep yourself unstained by the world. Moses' detachment from the allure of the present world he lived in in Egypt is also very interesting. Remember, he was discovered as a baby by the princess, was raised as one of the you know, sons of Pharaoh, given the best education, trained in business. He was going to have a really smooth life. And this is what it says in chapter 11. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here's what Moses thought. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6. He's talking about instructions to the rich. He said this. Charge the rich not to be proud and haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of money, but to trust in God to be rich in good deeds, to be generous. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What God's wanting us to understand is that why do we not want to be focused on attaching ourselves to the desires and for things in this world? Because they're not going to fill the void. For those of you who are regular with grace, we went through the book of Romans last fall. Remember in chapter 12, that phrase, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, how does God expose the weeds and how does he help us root them out? I was discussing this sermon a couple weeks ago with my son J.D. and he wisely suggested that I read chapter 2 of A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. In this chapter... The author is describing that scene in the Bible where God asks Abraham to sacrifice and kill his son. It's an act of proving that God was number one in his life. Remember, Isaac was the promised heir for all of the Jewish nation to come thereafter. He doesn't get born until Abraham's 86, and now he's 100, his son is 14, and he goes up on a mountain to offer his son as a sacrifice. And in the description of it, he says... Why did God ask this of Abraham? And he suggests that it is because Isaac, the heir, the promised child, was at the center of Abraham's heart. God waits until the knife is raised, ready for him to slay his son. And then he says, wait, I've got the, I've got the ram caught in the thicket. You can offer that. And he suggests this. It's as if God said, I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart so that I might reign there instead. And I wonder this morning, have any of you sensed God pushing his finger at something that's got precedence over him in your heart, an idol for you in your heart? Here's my humble suggestion. When God's conviction comes and you begin to sense what he's asking you to relinquish, always better to listen sooner than later. Later in the chapter on page 24, Tozer writes this. After Abraham had that experience, he never again used the words mine and my in association with his gifts and talents. 
And this is where this gets a little bit trickier to apply. Because what I've noticed in life is that God doesn't ask everybody to make the same outer sacrifice. And the reason is because most of us have different idols that take precedence, right? For some of us, it might just be a relationship. I don't want to be alone. I want to be in love. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep that relationship. Others of us, it might be success or money or a job. But the core of the pressing in your, in your soul is when God is exposing what's taking precedence over him. So attachment to the world is described as that which chokes and suffocates the life of God. It can be the cares of the world. It can be the deceitfulness of money and things. It can be pleasure. And lastly, it can be pride. This could probably be multiple sermons just on pride. I'm going to give you the cliff notes. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes pride. He wrote this. Pride does not get pleasure in having, just in having a little more. Just in being a little better. Now, I don't know where your pride plays out. I'm a very competitive person. I like to win. And what I've noticed is this. When I'm not a top performer at work, it messes with my sense of peace. Do you think that might have something to do with my pride? Yeah. Or how about this? What if I make an investment that ends up being a bad one? I lose some money on it. It seems to have outsized impact on my psyche. And so I wonder for you, what might God be asking you to let go of or forsake to put him back in the center of your life? And remember why he does it. So that we can experience that which is truly life. If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of miserable rich people. It's not going to fill the cup. Now, I've got to give you a couple cautions. For those of us who are going to begin this process of trying to respond to what God does, it's really easy to turn this into a rules. Part of what I experienced as a kid, as I mentioned, the list of all the rules we had to do to prove we were, were, we, that we were religious and we were not worldly. Want to know what I experienced as a kid? I'm not trying to say this was true about every church experience. I didn't see a lot of people in my church that looked and smelled like the aroma of Jesus, if you know what I'm saying. There was a lot of pointing fingers at the people that did go dancing and drinking and going to the, to the show. Can you believe how bad? A lot of gossip. A lot of, a lot of, look, it's insidious. We're all a mess, right? Second thing I want to warn you on. Don't start broadcasting to everybody how great you are. Jesus was really clear about the hypocrites that went around and, you know, prayed loud prayers and talked, you know, banged the trumpets before they gave money away. He said, no, no, no. Go to your closet, close the door, this is between me and you. These, these surrenderings are private experiences, not public ones. Unless you think that this is something to trifle with, there's a story in Acts chapter 5 of people that kind of let it look better than it really was. They made it seem like they sold a property and gave all the money away, but they kept a bunch out for their vacation and their retirement. And they, they were insinuating that they were super Christians and they got taken out. So you got to be careful about messing with this. Here's a quote I read on this, on this subject that it really was a good takeaway. Here's what the author said. If what I long, it, sorry, it's what I long for in my heart that makes me a lover of the world, not what I have. So we're not pointing fingers. We're not trying to feel like I'm better Christian than somebody else. We're just going, 
shine the light, Lord. Where, where do I need to be honest about what's going on? Now, I almost ended here, but I have one more zinger that I feel like I'm supposed to share. In some respects, this could have been the whole sermon. And what I'm gonna, the gist of what I'm going to share with you is something I'm actually taking from a sermon given by my now 89-year-old father over five decades ago. Um, as many of you know, I spent a lot of my childhood on my grandparents' farm between Lansing and Grand Rapids. On above the little sink area where my, where my grandma washed her dishes was this little card with my dad's face on it when he was really young. Uh, and the title of the message he gave was called The Road to Thessalonica. I think it was at some kind of an outdoor tent revival meeting back in the 60s. And my grandma had a cassette tape of this recording somehow from way back when. I remember the first time I listened to that sermon. I was 13. I just remember bawling. The Road to Thessalonica. It was taken from an obscure verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The last letter that Paul wrote. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. And here's the phrase. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. A one-time co-worker of Paul's who was on the front line with them, probably seeing many people healed, many outpourings of God's power, and at the same time experiencing many of the downsides and struggles of ministry and persecution. He somehow finds himself gradually being enticed by this present world, deserts his post with Paul, and ends up taking the road down to this town called Thessalonica. Interestingly, the text doesn't say he quit believing in Jesus, just that he deserted his post. In love with this present world, he traded his God calling of sacrifice, love, and struggle for a life more suited to his desires and pleasures. No doubt his God-given gifts intended to build up God's kingdom and serve people were pretty handy in the workplace. Maybe he made him a better sales guy, more skill. The phrase in the sermon that really riveted me to the core that's been reverberating for decades was this. Demas prostituted the very gifts that God had given him to serve God's kingdom, to create a comfortable life in this world for himself. I doubt someone could sink much lower than this. In Luke 12, Jesus said to the one to whom I've entrusted much, much more will be required. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 are really clear. Everyone's got something. It's intended to be multiplied, not to be buried under your mattress. And so the question I think for someone listening today is going to be this. Are you running from God's purpose for you? I challenge you to ask God, God, why am I so good at X? Why do I have these gifts and talents? What is it that you intend for me to do? Now, my hope is that God is shining lights in many of your hearts and there's a sense of conviction of what he wants you to deal with today. But there's some different options we have in how to respond to God's promptings, right? The ideal is we hear his promptings and we obey, we adjust, we do what God told Abraham to do. You want me to sacrifice, I sacrifice, I let go. What I've found is that many times those who delay, barter, and give God the Heisman 
God ends up smashing some things up in our life to kind of expose and remove the idols of our hearts, if you know what I mean. I had an experience like this last fall. I got in a car accident, totaled my car. And over the weekend, I didn't really know who the other person was, what happened to him, an ambulance had come. And I remember that first night, my mind just racing. What if they're dead? What if I get sued and everything I've... And I just realized, I've got a little too much security in my savings account. God was peeling back. So we can respond properly. We can, we can kind of, you know, resist until God exposes more drastically or worse. I've noticed that sometimes God just seems to kind of leave you alone. Let's just live in Thessalonica if that's what you really want. Now, when it comes to responding, I've observed in my own heart and I've observed in others these kinds of responses. Some of us do what I call partial repentance. You know what this is, right? You know something's off. You're not ready to let go completely, so you do little baby steps, and then you get really busy serving God in other areas. Maybe he'll grade on the curve. Enough good deeds make up for the things I'm clinging on to, right? <laughs> Partial response is when we don't really shift the core of our heart idol. We just, this is why you can't just look at other people and know what's, whether God's smiling or not. Some of the more religious people in the church might be filled with bitterness and anger just trying to make up for it by doing good deeds, right? What's worse is that some people do this. We just give up. We just sell out and move to Thessalonica. Maybe we just say, let's just move in with our boyfriend or girlfriend and hope for the best. Give in devices, poor sin patterns, compromise. And what we then do is we look around and go, well, it's not like anyone else is that much better. Maybe God will grade on the curve, right? Ha ha. (laughs) What I think God wants us to do is just to take an honest inventory Repent where we know we have idols and start obeying. If God asks you to give up X, do you respond or do you delay and barter? When there's a threat to your security blanket, do you turn to him in repentance or not? So let's kind of land the plane. How do we wrap this up? Interestingly, today is the midpoint of the year, right? It's kind of like a chance for new New Year's resolutions, First takeaway is, let's stop lying to ourselves. Are we all in and fully given over to God or not? Secondly, let's stop excusing the inconsistencies of our life. It's time for some of us to mature and start to look and smell more like Jesus. If you know that there's a person that popped up about the hatred, the bitterness that you need to let go, there's too much at stake. Get help. Come for prayer. Schedule a restorative prayer. But I think the the more penetrating question for many of us this morning is this. Are we on a dangerous road? Have we abandoned the call? Are we living in the wrong place? Let's just look this week at our gardens. Why are we letting the weeds grow? Don't we want the fruit to be there? And if any of us has the, the hard one, go kill your son on the altar, may we have the courage to, to trust him. 
so that we can experience the life that is truly life. And then my last little vignette, for any of you who've gone and done the extra credit to read all of the letter of 1 John, like Pastor Doug asked, wasn't it interesting what the last four words of the whole letter were? Don't cling to idols. Let's pray. Well, Lord, not exactly a pick-me-up kind of message for the 4th of July. We do thank you for the freedom we have. I fear that many of us are, are not doing what you want us to do with the life and freedom and opportunities we have here in America. And we just say, Lord, help us. We know that we're a mess. Give us the courage to forsake idols we've made, that we would allow you to come in and transform us, and that we would really experience what you want us to experience. In Jesus' name, amen. We had some uh, words from the prayer team before the service, and it's designed to just be a, a kind of hug from God. If these resonate with you, it's just a sign that maybe you should come up for prayer. You can come up for prayer for anything else as well. There'll be people up front. Someone has discouragement from not seeing the answer that you need and you're just getting discouraged about God's faithfulness. Come up for, for, for prayer there. There was a word that someone is dealing with psoriasis and needs healing. That there's someone that's feeling very lonely and the word is God wants you to not just know in your mind but to feel that you're not alone in your heart. Someone's word was simply this. Remember what the word of the year was at the beginning of the year that many of us do at the start? And again, it's the midpoint of the year. Revisit God's word to you. And then for one, interestingly, it was it's time to stop running. Yes. If you're running, come to prayer. Bless you. Have a great holiday. Thanks. Aww.